All right, it's time to get started. We are going to pick up where we left off. Remember, we were in this profound speech that the Apostle Paul was giving there on the shores of Miletus uh, to the pastors there from the area around Ephesus, telling them it's the last time that they were going to see one another, so here's a heads up on what's coming and how to be a faithful servant of the Lord, something that we all need to hear and take to heart. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Father God, perhaps these are the most important words in the Bible about Christian service, about pleasing God with our lives that you've given us, ministries that you've entrusted us with. Father, here in this passage and profound and kind of um, very intense passage this morning, we pray that we would hear what the Spirit is saying that we could apply these truths and be a blessing to you to be safeguarding our lives from any spiritual disaster. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's exactly what the Word of God has given to us to help us to avoid pitfalls and pitfalls and setbacks and all kinds of problems to keep us safe and secure, amen? So, yeah, parting words there on the beach uh, before he gets on the boat, and parting words are often really of great importance. As we've been saying, there's nothing like knowing you're never going to see that person again to bring to the surface things that really matter most. That's exactly what's going on here, Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul saying his final goodbyes to a group of pastors he'd been with for several years, working together, ministering the gospel there in Ephesus. It's the last time they're going to be together, so what matters most is that they serve God well. Despite every obstacle and affliction and adversity that's going to come their way, and there'll be many, and it might tempt some to give up, to morally compromise or to compromise the message. But he said, no, we can't do that. So uh, you'll recall, Paul's on his way now to Jerusalem, and he's left Europe. And the ship had a port of call in Miletus, about 50 miles south of Ephesus, so no chance to really be with the church again, but he can call for the pastors in the area. And that he did, and they came to gather together for one last time. This, gentlemen, is what matters most, how to be effective and productive for God, that your Christian life would not be a waste, that you won't have any regrets at the end of your life. I could have done more for the Lord. And instead, if you take these words to heart, for sure you're going to hear the Lord say to you face to face, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and celebrate in your master's joy. And so we long to hear that. So we're all ears here. Now we made it through the first half of Paul's speech to them. And we're going to pick up where we left off. And we'll start from the beginning of the speech for context. And then uh, we'll dive back in. All right, so you remember, he gets off the boat, calls for the guys in verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, pastors, same word, of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you, men, 
From the very first day I came into the area, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews who were trying to assassinate me. Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus here. He leaves them with an example to follow, right? And then he goes on to give them a motive to live by. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I don't know all the details. I only know that for sure. The Holy Spirit's warning me that in every city, prison and hardships are facing me. However, here it is. Here's the, 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 the secret to blessed ministry and a blessed Christian life. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So he leaves them with an example, then he leaves them with a motive to live by, and then a warning. This is going to be our text for this morning. Now, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, preaching the gospel, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of everybody. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel, the whole truth of God's plan. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of the same word as pastor and elder. Different functions, same person. Be shepherds, that word means to feed or to pastor. Uh, Pastor the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. That word means to twist or to pervert. In order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is the word of the Lord, and this is our passage for our reflection today. An example to follow, a motto to live by, and now a warning about wolves. Something to take to heart for sure. So, in these remarks to the servants of the Lord, uh, what have you thought of Paul's exhortation to you thus far? The reason I am asking you in that way is because the Holy Spirit uh, has given every Christian a gift, and he calls us all ministers. He uses that word of everybody. So, of of course, the context of this passage is uh, full-time, God-called vocational pastors, Uh, but it has a wider uh, general meaning and application to everyone who is called a servant of the Lord, which is meaning every Christian has a ministry and every believer is a minister. 
according to the Bible. So what's good for the goose is good for the ganders, amen? (laughs) And that's why we're paying attention. Well, I asked you how you're receiving all of this exhortation to live the Christian life uh, because for me, it's been rather daunting, unnerving, sobering, (laughs) and it just seems to be building intensity, right? The more he talks, the more it's like kind of, smelling salts for the soul. I mean, it's very riveting stuff. So first he says to those uh, who minister for the Lord, they've got to be faithful no matter what to continually serve God right through humiliations, through your tears, through heartbreak, through life-threatening persecution. We serve God without moral compromise and without changing one single word of the message. And second, he goes on to say that uh, we have this principle of this worldview that drives us to serve the Lord, not valuing self-preservation as our highest priority. And uh, more valuable than my own life, Paul says, is the one who gave me that life and that I might accomplish the purpose for which he created me. Now, I mean, how do you do that? How do you do any of this? You know, it's so intimidating. You know, how, how do you uh, lay aside the instincts of self-preservation to always make it about ourselves? I mean, the, the truth of the, the matter is that we can't. Um, we have the Holy Spirit, and he helps us. And so just when you're thinking, man, these are some heavy-duty words, then this message about bloodthirsty wolves surrounding the flock of God. Wolves that don't look like wolves. It would be one thing if you could just say, hey, there's a wolf, right? And by the way, there is a wolf here. His name is Wolf, <laughs> but, uh, but he's a Christian. It's, it's okay. It's okay. He's right there. His real name is Wolfgang, but he goes by Wolf. It's so amazing, but thankfully his heart has been cleansed, and he is a sheep, right? Mrs. Wolf? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Now, yeah, this is the thing that we need courage, you know, because it would be one thing to be able to spot them. But Jesus tells us what the wolf will be wearing. He said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, he said, watch out for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but you unzip the costume and inside you find a ravenous wolf. So we need uh, courage to serve well. That's my major takeaway so far. God, give me courage. It doesn't, and this isn't in my notes, this thought here, it doesn't surprise me. In Revelation, the end of Revelation, maybe chapter 22, there's a list of all those outside of the city who are destined for the lake of fire. There's a description. And the first word, outside are the cowards. Wow. Before the sexually immoral, before the liars, before the perjurers, before the idol worshipers, before the murderers. The first word, cowards. They were afraid to die to their own sin. They were afraid. to serve Lord, to serve the Lord. They were just cowards, and it cost them uh, their souls. They, they valued temporary pleasures 
over their own souls. Now, Margaret Thatcher's dad was a minister, and she would quote one of the things he would say that shaped her and guided her in her life. God wants no faint hearts for his ambassadors. Now, the British call them faint hearts, but we call them cowards, right? So the gospel in the Christian life is not for the faint of heart. And yeah, of course, we all have our squeamish moments. We have insecurities, all of us. Inconsistencies to deal with, for sure. Even someone heroic like Elijah, he ran for his life when Queen Jezebel said, as surely as the gods live, I will kill you before the sun sets. And he was terrorized. You see, so it's not like we don't struggle. It's just that we have to have an abiding sense of boldness and confidence and courage to do the Lord's work. And I do like what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, after talking about the Christian life and the kinds of lives we need to be living, he says, and who is equal to such a task? It's a rhetorical question saying, I'm not up to this. So if in myself, in my own strength, how do you do any part of the Christian life? How do you do any of this without God's help? And he answers his own question, doesn't he? The, le- the next chapter he says, not that we're competent in ourselves of anything, but our competence comes from God. And, and I love this. He has made us competent as ministers of this new life. I love that. So listen up. The Lord commands all of his Joshua's. He speaks to every servant of his, be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Isn't it God who's telling you this? Be strong and courageous because I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Everything you're called to do, I will enable you by my all-sufficient grace and power. The one who commands you is the one who enables you. He doesn't say, I need you to jump this high when he knows you can't do it. No, he will make sure that as you trust him and you yield yourself to him, you will be jumping much higher than you ever dreamed you could because it's him and his power. And this is how we face these words for sure. So let's unpack this very profound paragraph and before this sobering warning about the wolves, uh, he, 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 he says something that I think the Holy Spirit uses as an attention-getting device. Okay, He says, gentlemen, these are our last few moments together. You'll never see my face again, and I will never see yours. Now, talk about spiritual bonds of love and friendship. Paul the Apostle came and came into town in those cities and he led most of them out of darkness into light. He was their spiritual father. He was their mentor. And together they preached the gospel. They planted churches. They pastored together. They shouldered the burdens together. They escaped life-threatening persecution. They escaped death together. Do you know what kind of love and 
bonds are created in those kinds of situations. And so for him to say, this is it, I'm never going to see you again. Why does he say that? Well, number one, who knows what's going to happen? He's going to Jerusalem. The boat's right there. And the Holy Spirit has already warned him, look, there's, there's some serious hardship coming your way waiting for you. So perhaps he'll be martyred there. But even if he survives, which he does, and has 10 years left, he has said to them, God has put it in my heart to travel to Rome to minister there at the church at Rome and then have them help me get to the outer portions of the Roman Empire to make my way to Spain. So there's no plan. There's no reason. He's not coming back and they do never see him again. And so after he says, I will never see you guys again, they're riveted. The Holy Spirit's tool to say, now etch these words onto the fabric of your souls. Bind these truths around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your hearts because they'll keep you safe. Only one life you will be before God before you know it. Either he comes to us or you're going to him. There's no other option. And you want that to go well. You really do. And listening and applying to these words will ensure that you do well on the day that matters most. And so, yes, they're ready. They're ready now, and they're listening here. And he starts off by saying, my conscience is clean. There's no blood on my hands. Now, he's saying this, and he's going to say, gentlemen, and to all Christians, you really want to go through your life and your Christian life knowing that you are not guilty of withholding valuable information that could have averted somebody from some kind of spiritual disaster. The implication of saying, I've shared the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. I've told you every part of it, whether it was uh, uncomfortable or awkward or got me in trouble. I told you everything, the unpopular stuff, the stuff that nobody wants to hear. But I told you because it's necessary to keep you from destroying yourself. So if you do destroy yourself, it's on you. Because I've discharged my duty in my sphere of influence by telling everybody the necessary general information, the whole nine yards. You didn't withhold the hard parts, lest you be malnourished or set along a road that ends in uh, some kind of horrible disaster. Uh, Yeah, he says, I'm innocent. And of course, the implication is if you do withhold, you're not innocent, that you're complicit So if there's somebody in your sphere of influence that that doesn't know or is drifting and you don't say something, aren't you an accomplice? Aren't you an accomplice? You let it happen. You see, the whole will of God, verse 27, the whole counsel of God is something Calvary chapels like to point to. That's in uh, This verse is in our bylaws, in our constitution, as it were, uh, because the style of ministry at Calvary chapels is line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We go straight through the Bible, very Bible-centered, so that it's safest. There's not going to be 
uh, as many holes in our theology or a gap in our understanding because sooner or later we're going to cover the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we just keep going through the Bible. If you go online, you will find every verse of the New Testament preached through. From Matthew to Revelation, every single verse in the New Testament, you can find a sermon. If you're anywhere in the New Testament, you can go look it up. And much of the Old Testament as well, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole counsel of God. He said, I did that. And so I, um, I don't uh, worry about God reprimanding me because I put somebody in harm's way by my cowardice or my desire to withhold helpful information. And so this is what he's saying. What a word to pastors and Christian workers Unbelievable what has become of the pulpit in America. Pastors don't even crack the Bible open once. Some of them. Some of them show movie clips. That's it. Let's watch this movie and make some spiritual applications. Others want to talk about social justice and politics. The pulpit is turned into a place to hear little sermonettes on self help principles, how to live a good life, how to be a nice person, how to have a good attitude. None of that is going to save you. None of that is the whole gospel. None of that, you see. We have to preach the gospel. I mean, sheep need fully loaded grain. <laughs> you know, They need the feed to have 12 essential vitamins and minerals <laughs> and antibiotics. They need the whole thing. And so and grave consequences for uh, withholding. I'll just, before we move on, I read an article, maybe you saw this headline, driver dies after GPS leads him to a bridge that was out. Father of two, the barricade was gone, the GPS wasn't updated somehow, and it actually directed him on a road that cost him his life. A beautiful picture of him and his lovely wife and two adorable little girls. And he died. And his wife said, well, who's going to take responsibility for this? This is needless death, right? And so too, how much more serious are so-called Christians who from their GPS, they are directing people who look to them because they're connected to God and the Bible and Jesus to get their guidance. And from their lips, they not only not tell them the truth, but they affirm them and guide them to take a road that will lead them to destruction. Oh, you don't need to repent of that. That lifestyle, oh, that's fine with God. He loves you the way you are. And so now you're more popular and the world applauds you, but that poor soul is headed for destruction. Huh? Jesus said, look, when you do that kind of thing, just know this. If you're given a choice to stand before me or this, get boated out there to the middle of the Pacific, put a big slab of concrete, chain it to your neck and get tossed over. Choose that. Rather than coming into my courtroom, misrepresenting me and stumbling somebody in my name 
that led them off a cliff, choose the ocean rather than what is in store for your soul. So, yeah, so he's saying, um, so far he's saying, tell the whole message, avoid misleading people. And now he's going to say, watch yourself and shepherd the flock because the wolf's coming. So let's go to 28, unpacking as we go. uh, watch yourself. This is amazing. Don't miss it. You know, you said keep watch over the flock. Yeah, we know that's what we're supposed to be doing. We are our brother's keepers. Yeah, we get that. But first he says, watch yourself, man. Watch yourself, man. If you're going to be of any help to God in any way, first you've got to have it together. You've got to be living it. You've got to make sure that, quote, 1 Corinthians 9 doesn't happen to you. That after preaching to others, you yourself will be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, no, 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 that's not going to happen to me. I will beat my body into submission and make it my slave. Because you can have all the right words, but be a false prophet in your heart. A hypocrite, you see. So he says to first. Um, to First Timothy. He says to Timothy in his first letter, I think I've got that, chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life, Timothy, and your doctrine closely. First your life. Preserve in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That's amazing there. Keep watch over yourself. Take your vital signs, spiritually speaking. Morning, noon, and night, why not ask yourself, is my devotion to the Lord increasing or diminishing? This is how you watch yourself. Am I just sort of drifting along now? Because I got this, been doing it for so long. Or am I pressing in? Is my zeal for the Lord lukewarm? Or is my zeal, which the word means to boil, is it truly boiling? You see... And what about my darling little sins, my favorite little shortcuts? What about them? How are we doing? And are the blogs I'm following, the books I'm reading, the teachers I'm listening to, are they biblically sound? He says, watch yourself so that you can shepherd God's people. Now, let's just make a couple comments about that next little phrase, shepherd God's people. That's what we're all doing. We do it in different ways, obviously, but that's the general uh, principle. You'll never have to wonder what the pastor's first priority is because the pastor word literally just means feeder. It actually means to feed literally. And it's come to mean to lead or to shepherd, you see. But quite literally, it just means the feeder. And Jesus helped Peter know that after he repented of denying the Lord, he said, do you love me? Do you love me, Simon? Do you love me? Three times. Then show your love for me by feeding my sheep. Feed my little ones, you see. If you're ever wondering how you could say thank you to the Lord who bled and died for you so that you could be saved, saved you from eternal loss. Nourish people. Encourage them, build them up with his word. He loves that. That's what he wants. He says, you can show me how much you love me by encouraging with my word uh, the flock. And it's especially true to pastors. I work hard at this 
I really do. I've worked hard at preaching all my life. I don't do it so much for you, although I do love you and care about you, and I do think about you when I'm preparing. And I'm thinking about you right now, because you're all staring at me. (laughs) (laughs) But I do this, because I was on the path to hell, and I deserve to go there. And for some unknown reason, God said, that one. I'll take that one. That was me, right? So, no. (laughs) This always backfires. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, this is my way of saying, thank you, God. I'll do this until you don't want me to do it anymore. I will be out of a job in heaven, right? Because nobody needs preachers in heaven because he's sitting right there. He's the head guy, right? So, yeah, nourish them. So, there we go. And then, you know, look at this little aside that is shocking. He said, I want you to care about other Christians, nourishing them, taking care of them. They are the ones who were purchased by God's own blood, Now, why did he do that? That's a shocking thing to say. He's going to ratchet this up a notch, isn't he? He's going to say, lest you have some kind of casual attitude about what God's entrusted you with, the ones he's entrusted you to, A, belong to him, and B, the way they got that way was a purchase made through the cross at Calvary. That the Son of God, to buy them, so that they would not be owned by Satan and sin and darkness and death, but belong to God and light and truth. The price tag on that person he's entrusted you with to care for is his own blood. He bled and died. He took the, the, the flogging on his back that killed a lot of people. He was beaten and spat upon and stripped publicly and then nailed to a piece of wood, lifted up, and then slowly suffocated to death and bled to death. That's the price tag on the person that he's saying, this is valuable, can I entrust it to you? Yeah, yeah. he's not entrusting you with a with $100 million dollars or the crown jewels, or, or some historic document that's one of a kind. You know, it's valuable beyond words. It's in your keeping. No, no, <laughs> a million times a million more valuable than that. So how are you caring for what cost God his blood? So now he's ready to present the wolves, the false teachers, Uh, who are an ever-present problem, always encircling the people of God. Really, from the time of the Garden of Eden, there was deception and false lies being spun by Cain, you know, and all the way to the end, generation after generation. Look what in the Old Testament, God has a word through Jeremiah 14 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Jeremiah, the prophets are teaching lies in my name. I haven't sent them. I haven't appointed them. I haven't spoken to them. I don't even know them. They are 
prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. So this is just not something new. False teachers have been around for a long time. So, I mean, you just start thinking of the Old Testament. You've got Balaam who said, listen, to the king who hired him, said, listen, I, don't, you know, I can only tell you what God tells me to tell you. And then they said, well, how about $1,000? And he says, okay. <laughs> you know, so there just been these guys after money, these sellouts, are, and, and they always have a, a reason, a self-serving a reason. Um, there's 2 Peter 2, 1 that says, but there were also pro- false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will, and here's the deal. You guys secretly introduce destructive heresy. It means crooked these non-orthodox ways of thinking of God's truth, even denying the sovereign Lord that Jesus isn't really God who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And so, you know, false teaching is the most effective tool in the devil's uh, workshop, all right? It's because of this. Truth saves, all right? So if the enemy wants to prevent less people from being saved, then offer them something that looks like truth, sounds like truth, feels like truth, but isn't. Just tweak it subtly, just enough to take away its saving power. Mix some truth in with some lies and some lies in with truth and distort the truth. Make it confusing, deceitful. You know, it's counterfeit. If a counterfeit thing is going to work, it's going to look a lot like the real deal. You see? But guess what? The paper it's printed on is worthless. It looks exactly like the real deal. But just tear it up because it's worth nothing. It looks like it's worth something, and that's what they do. They make it real close, you know. So, yeah, Um, that's what they do. They make a new version that sounds pleasant. It's uplifting, plausible by human reasoning. Uh, It makes sense in this world, but only God's ways are higher than our ways. Our ways are opposite of his ways. And so if it makes sense to us in the natural, it's not necessarily God's way of doing things. And so he's going to appeal to human understanding. This is what they do. And the New Testament teaches you this, that the lies that come in, they're going to sound wise by human standards. They're going to appeal to worldly philosophies, worldly ways of thinking that are actually opposed to God's ways. And they're going to deliver sweet sounding lies, attractive falsehoods, Uh, through ministries and blogs and Facebook pages and books and sermons from attractive people with charismatic, beautiful personalities, uh, beautiful appearances, uh, beautiful words, beautiful lies. And it works with a blinding spirit of deception that the uh, father of lies gladly provides. He is, after all, called that, the father of lies. And it says, this shouldn't surprise any of us. He said, because even 
Satan's servants masquerade themselves as people of the light. That he himself, Lucifer, disguises himself as an angel of light that glitters and is all good. You're not just going to go for the devil who appears to you as a monster with a sign saying, run for your life, I want to kill you. You know, it would be so much easier, but it doesn't go that way. And so instead they use these eloquent, beautiful words, equity and inclusion and social justice. And who's not for those things? Only those things don't mean what those things seem to mean. They don't. And so now we have pastors and Christians in an entire blogosphere of woke Christians who have changed the gospel into something else which is not a gospel at all. And if you change the thing that can save into something else, the something else cannot save, you see. And that's the whole point. Paul tells Timothy, in the last times, man, listen up. But they're going to gather around them all kinds of wolves in sheep's clothing to, to scratch where their itching ears want to be scratched, to tell them things like, oh, only the good things, only the things that are warm and fuzzy. God loves you. He's got lots of mercy for you and grace, and he accepts you as you are. Check, 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 check. And then they leave it there. No need of repentance. Everybody's going to make it. There's no need for, for hell and worry about that. You see, we have to be watching and watchful, you see. Yeah, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but verse 4, I think I have it. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. That's exactly what's happened. Do you have a natural inclination? Then that's okay because that's how God made you. Listen, every single natural inclination that is in us is subject to being sinful. Just because you have a prompt that's been with you all your life doesn't make it moral. Because we were born sinners. So now, secretly, wormed their way in, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us, hey, it doesn't matter. And he says, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus. This is um, beautiful things. One writer said, listen, when you're more forgiving than Jesus and wiser than the apostle Paul, Houston, we have a problem, you see. So, yeah. Do they know they're wolves? I would say some of them do, but I think most of them don't. You know what they see themselves as? They're heroic. It used to be that when you abandoned the faith, when you went into moral compromise, it's a shameful thing. You would slip into your private life and under the cover of darkness, do your own thing, reject what you've been taught, and go your happy way. But no, no, now it's not a shameful thing to deny the faith. It's a heroic thing. You come out, you found your voice, you're speaking your truth, you're going to blaze the trail to lead the other oppressed people, the repressed 
people, the hateful people, the people who are so uptight and narrow-minded down the narrow road that leads to life. <laughs> yeah. So now the world applauds. And now, no, we're going to turn it around. You're the shameful ones. Oh, I've left the faith. I've denied the Lord that shed his blood for me. I've told everybody the Bible's not anything. It's just a book of examples. But you know who's the shameful one? It's you. You guys are. I am applauded in the world. And I have a gabillion followers. And you. Your churches are shrinking. No one thinks you're popular anymore. The Lord says their condemnation has been spoken of long ago. That's a dead end road. They won't spare the flock back to the text. <laughs> Nothing will stop them. No reverence for God or the cross or Jesus. Just there, it says here in First Timothy two four, they will be speaking lies in hypocrisy and branding their own, searing their own consciences as if with a hot iron. So they won't spare the flock to just come in. Doesn't matter if it's mom or dad, wife or husband. It, it's all for self recognition to draw people after themselves. Notice verse thirty. To boost their following. If, if, if that was true 2,000 years ago, so much more now with social media. It's all about boosting the followings, you see. And so saying things that ever will get them the applause from the world, but not from heaven. And that's too bad. And so the worst thought of all, of course, is the scariest part of all. But he says, listen, guys, from your own crowd, your own home fellowship group, from the worship team, from the pastoral staff, some of them, you're going to find out, are actually wolves. You can't tell now, but you will. Now, I'm talking here, and he's talking about not the shenanigans that go on in all churches of well-intending Christians or relational fallouts or backsliding. We're talking about a total abdication of faith, a renouncing of Jesus and the gospel. He says, those people, it is possible that you find them. And, and you know, it's one thing to have somebody on the outside attacking, but it's when somebody from Hillsong comes out and says, I found my voice and I've seen the light, which is actually a testimony in reverse or a pastor who was popular, and now he's, you know, he's rethinking things and come up with a progressive gospel. This happens all the time, and it was prophesied. We've been warned, and he says, take heart. It's going to happen. Brace yourself. And I guess that word was probably really good for those men to hear. Like when the Lord said, one of you at this table... I've cleansed you all, but one of you. <laughs> and they all said, is it me? Is it I? That's a good question to ask. What is going on in your heart? Are you vetting the things you're listening to? There are good websites. One I would recommend to you is C-A-R-M, Christian Apologetics. 
Apologetics Research Ministry, CARM. And if you're ever wondering, is this guy legit? Is this teacher okay? Very conservative biblical folks there, the Gospel Coalition. There are websites, or you can... uh, Anybody on staff here? Hey, you know, there's this new somebody, a girlfriend told me about this good woman, teacher. She's got a lot of followers and all of this. Do your part. Check it out. That's what he says to do. My three takeaways from today, I, I just sit back and go, what did I get out of this? <laughs> Number one, sharing the entire message, the whole will of God will absolve me of any responsibility should someone go sideways. Number two, if I can be of any good to anybody else, I have to keep a close eye on my own heart. And thirdly, I've got to sound the alarm, no matter the cost, to protect my Christian friends and my loved ones and the church from being lured away Productive lies that will destroy the people God bought with his own blood. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this stirring word. We need it. It's true. Even more true today than it was 2,000 years ago. Thank you, God, for to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so we got it. God, we, we understand that. Now help us to hold it close to our hearts and live it out so that we could be a blessing to you and useful in this good fight of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.